startle us, O God, with your truth and your love. Open our hearts. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of the most frequent critiques leveled against religion is that it is nothing more than a means of social control. Religion is an attempt of powerful people to influence others by the use of rewards and punishments. Some of them are legal or social or supernatural. The way this thinking goes is that if you do the right things, religion will lead to freedom and inclusion and heaven. But if you do the wrong things, you will be subject to imprisonment and exclusion and hell. That's religion as social control. Thankfully, much of that formal thinking has gone by the wayside over time, but there are still significant ways in which religious voices thrive on social control. Religions shame or exclude people for their behavioral choices. Religions create false polarizations in our political culture. And this legacy of social control is so deep and so innocuous that religious communities can sometimes be the clickiest and most unwelcoming of places when hospitality is supposed to be our thing. Now, obviously, this introduction is not very flattering to religion, uh, but I talk about it freely because I do not think that religion was ever supposed to be about social control. And I think it's important that we talk about that. I believe there is value to the rules and practices of religion, but that value is not about one person having authority over your life. And when religion slides into that place, it loses much of its goodness and its vitality. So with that as a backdrop, let's look at an old Bible story together. In Luke 13, Henry read to us this morning, we have before us what is on the surface a healing story. A woman appears before Jesus with an ailment, and he makes her well. This is a very common plot line in the stories about Jesus. We take a step back and look at the story through a wider lens, and we notice another very common storyline. The story takes place in a synagogue on the Sabbath day, and the leader of the synagogue objects to the healing, saying that it is not lawful to work on the Sabbath. This is another common plot line. Jesus is challenged by a detractor who wishes to catch him making a mistake. If you peel back one more layer of this story, you begin to see why the Bible keeps telling these same plot lines over and over and over again, because this story is actually a critique of religion as social control. The synagogue leader who questions Jesus represents social control. He enforces a set of religious laws that have become for him a means of preserving his power over other people. 
When Jesus comes into the synagogue and starts attracting attention with his teaching, this religious leader is threatened, so he looks for an opportunity to embarrass Jesus. And that opportunity comes when Jesus does work on the Sabbath by healing this woman. On the surface, this story may seem to be about a healing miracle or about the usefulness of Sabbath laws, but the deeper we go, the more we realize that this is a story about social control and about the power of this temple authority to maintain the status quo. If you're an avid Bible reader, if you have been to church often and hear lots of Bible stories, I imagine that little I've said about this story comes as a great surprise to you. But let me highlight a detail of this story, a detail that I discovered this week that sometimes gets missed, and this detail also suggests what the story might have to do with us. Did you notice the ailment with which this woman is struggling. The story says that for 18 years she was bent over and quite unable to stand up straight. And taken by itself, this seems like just an unfortunate physical ailment. But in the context of everything else, we see something else. This woman has limped into a synagogue for which she herself is the metaphor. Hopelessly bent over, focused on the dust under her feet, her spirit numbed by 18 years of being stuck that way. She cannot see and can hardly even imagine what is right in front of her. She can't see what her eyes are really supposed to see. The same thing is true for the leader of the synagogue. He has no physical symptoms, but he is suffering from exactly the same problem. His focus is so entirely on a set of religious rules and the preservation of his own power that he has completely missed Jesus, God, right there in his synagogue. This religious leader has no interest in what Jesus was teaching, whether the lesson that day was about the plight of the poor or freedom from fear or the power of forgiveness. He can't even see the human need of this suffering woman who enters his synagogue. So busy is he criticizing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath and threatening his power. The really convicting thing about this teaching is if we realize that we have the same problem. Often we would prefer that the church harmlessly provide over our weddings and our funerals and our baptisms, visit us in the hospital, teach us abstract moral lessons and teach them to our children. And then we bristle when Jesus says something radical 
about the lives we are leading. In spite of our deep longing, many of us, for a a more meaningful and richer life, despite our desire for things that could somehow be better and different about the world in which we live, most of us would rather cling to the ways of life we're used to. C.S. Lewis famously wrote a story about a group of people who leave hell on a holiday to heaven. When they arrive in heaven, life is transformed in every way for the better. One woman who is used to back-breaking work as a clothes washer finds herself relaxing in a clean, soft gown, enjoying rest and renewal in a way she had never imagined. And others have very similar experiences. The twist in the story is that at the end of the holiday, most of them willingly board the bus and go back to hell. Even the trip back is horrible, but before they even arrive, these people have already accommodated themselves back to the horrors because hell is what they're used to. It is their status quo, their familiar rhythm, their routine march toward death. C.S. Lewis says this is what human beings do. This sad reality is just the way the synagogue authority feels in response to Jesus. Of course Jesus is offering a better, richer, fuller way of being faithful, focused on things that really matter. But the religious leader would rather continue to do what he knows and what makes him feel safe and in control. The same thing is true of many of us. We, We love hearing bold visions of what life is supposed to look like when we live it in Jesus' name. But we get scared about what we might have to sacrifice in order to actually get there. So we're glad for our our faith and our church to remain a nice place to have weddings and hear pretty music, even when Jesus' real challenges are right in front of us. So one way to sum up the message of this story is to say that it is a reminder to get our heads up out of the dirt. We need to regain our vision, focus on the substance of Jesus' message. Stop being limited by the status quo. The problem is, what does that actually look like? Because most of us are not going to completely walk away from the many, many, many status quos that shape our lives every single day. And as a matter of fact, Many of those status quos have value. You see, if the message of the story that we read is that we should abandon the Sabbath, I can't go along with that. Nor do I think that's what Jesus meant. I'm sure that plenty of you, like me, could use more Sabbath in your life, more rest, more prayer, more hours away from work and technology. But if making a 180-degree turn from all of the status quos in your life 
is not the message of this passage? What is it? Here I think it's important to remind ourselves that Jesus was an observant Jew. He believed there was value in the rules of Judaism when they were applied correctly, and he did not wish for them to be abandoned. What I see going on in this story is that Jesus seeks an application of the law that is less rigid and more flexible so that the the real spirit of the law is not lost in its application. It's a way of living the status quo that leans not toward solidifying our habits, but instead being shaken out of them every once in a while. It's a religion where love and giving and forgiveness and acceptance, these are really the first purposes. And they come, sometimes surprisingly, guided by religion. Eugene Peterson was a giant of the Presbyterian faith. You might know him as the author of a Bible translation called The Message. Eugene Peterson's younger career was a little more ordinary. He worked in his father's butcher shop. He started out sweeping the floors, and then he graduated to grinding hamburger, and when he was older, he was finally handed a knife. That knife has a will of its own, another butcher told him. Get to know your knife. Peterson also found that a beef carcass has a will of its own. It's not just an inert mass of meat and gristle and bone, but it has character and joints and texture and grain. Carving a quarter of beef into roasts and steaks was not a matter of imposing the will of the knife on dumb matter, but respectfully and reverently entering into the reality of that material that had once been a living thing. Hackers, bad butchers, tried to impose their will on the beef, and the results were ugly and wasteful. But good butchers learned to cut in response to the beef. They worked with humility before the materials in front of them. Author David Brooks writes of religion that a believer approaches God with a humble reverence and comes through study and prayer and spiritual disciplines to get a feel for the grain of God's love. She gradually learns to live along the grain of God's love and not against the grain. It's not a willful attempt to dominate life or other people, nor is it a complete surrender and self-annihilation. It's a simple and enthusiastic response. It is participation, the complex participation of a person's will into God's larger will. How should we live as religious people? Religion is not the social control of one person or group of people over another. But it is 
a willingness to align yourself with the influences of God. Most of us, as we grow older, become more and more rigid and stuck in our ways and habits. Religion wants something else from us. God calls us to live our status quos with ever-increasing compassion. A little more vulnerability, a little more risk, a little bit more generosity than we thought we might have. Because that kind of living is what over time shapes a life of faith in the direction of grace. This is the work we are about as religious people. Negotiating the life we are used to with the good news of Jesus Christ, which constantly prods us toward more generosity, more forgiveness, more risk, more compassion. Will we continue to limp around in life, head in the dust beneath us? Or will we lift our heads and see what God wants us to see? Amen.